Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week, I've been thinking a lot about China, about a particular moment in Chinese history, actually. The crackdown on protesters in Tiananmen Square happened when I was just 10 years old, so I don't know if I was all that aware of what was happening at the time. But an image from those chaotic days in Beijing is seared into my memory, as it is for many other Americans who saw the same video I did, back then or in the decades since. You probably know it. A man, standing in the middle of the empty square, stares down a row of approaching tanks. That image stands as a defining moment of resistance during a horrific act of state violence that left hundreds, maybe thousands, of Chinese citizens dead. And it's one of the first things that pops into my head when conversation turns to China. I can't help it. It's the example, in my mind, of what separates the communist government of China from the democracy of the United States. China is a country that is fundamentally authoritarian, and when people rise up, the tanks are brought out, and people are killed. That's not how things work in America. That's an incredibly simplistic way to view our countries. Still, when the Chinese ruling party announced earlier this year that it would be enacting a draconian national security law in Hong Kong, that's the image and the idea that leapt to mind. Faced with the ongoing protests in the semi-autonomous city, Beijing was putting its foot down. And American politicians were quick to condemn the new law. But at the same time, the United States was seeing its own uprising, and in recent weeks, the federal government has met that uprising with force that has startled many Americans. Anonymous federal agents have pulled citizens into unmarked cars, cleared crowds of mostly peaceful protesters with clouds of tear gas, and fired so-called less-than-lethal munitions at people, putting them in the hospital. There are, to be sure, big differences between Tiananmen Square and the Portland Federal Courthouse. We are not seeing mass slaughter on the streets of Portland. And those protesters who have been brutalized by federal agents, they maintain an avenue of redress. They can sue. Still, it's impossible not to see similarities between what is currently happening in Hong Kong and what's happening in this country. Why is it that our representative democracy and an authoritarian state can produce such eerily similar conflicts? For this week's episode, I brought this question to Wilfred Chan, a contributing writer for The Nation magazine who's been tracking protests in Hong Kong since 2014. He's also been keeping an eye on the protests in American cities and has something to say about connections between the two. Then, later in the show, I'll bring Crosscut City reporter David Croman on to talk about the revival of protests in Seattle following President Trump's announcement that he would be sending federal agents to the city, as he did in Portland. Before we get to this week's interviews, I wanted to remind you of Crosscut's Northwest Newsmakers event on August 26th. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal will join us to talk about the pandemic and policing and a whole lot of other stuff. For more information and to RSVP, go to crosscut.com slash events. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Wilfred Chan. Wilfred is a contributing writer for The Nation, covering capitalism in East Asia. 
Previously, as a journalist in Hong Kong, he covered the pro-democracy umbrella movement in 2014, which was the precursor to the 2019 uprising. He's also a writer and member of Laosan, a leftist collective focused on the political struggles within Hong Kong. He's currently based in New York City. Wilfred, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks so much. So, Wilfred, in the interest of setting the table, can you give a brief history of the protest movement in Hong Kong? Yeah, you can think of what's happening now as a reaction against a pattern of broken promises. In 1984, the UK and Chinese government signed a treaty, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which set forth the blueprint for Hong Kong after decolonization in 1997. And what's interesting about the Hong Kong kind of decolonization is, unlike in other examples in history, there was no real restructuring of society or the economy or the political system. Uh, for most purposes, the British colonial system was preserved. And the reason for that is that the goal of the Chinese Communist Party was to keep Hong Kong as a window to the world, a window to global capitalism. And it's explicitly enshrined in that post-colonial constitution that Hong Kong must safeguard the free flow of capital. And so the sticking point is the idea of whether Hong Kong would have democracy. And the agreement says yes, but it says that Hong Kong will eventually create a system of universal suffrage to elect the city's leader. So people had a, a cautious sense of optimism after the handover in 1997 that, that eventually the different parties could get together and hash out a way for Hong Kongers to choose their own leader. The talks went on for years and years and years, and the, the sides grew farther apart until it became very clear in 2014 that there was going to be no agreements, that Hong Kong was not going to have a, a system of democratic elections. And that's when you saw the Umbrella Movement, which was a 79-day street occupation surrounding the government headquarters uh, as a last-ditch effort to demand universal suffrage. Uh, that movement caught international uh, headlines, and uh, it was ultimately cleared by force without a single demand by the protesters met. That was when I started covering Hong Kong as a journalist, when I lived there for four years. So you have then steadily increasing repression from the Hong Kong government, backed by the Beijing government, um, where you have a growing sense of doom, more and more messages sent to the Hong Kong people that Beijing is just not interested in any form of democracy in Hong Kong whatsoever. And, and this reached a boiling point in 2019 when you had the extradition bill, which was an attempt by the leader in Hong Kong to say that you could face prosecution in mainland China if you did certain things, um, that China could extradite people in Hong Kong. And this was a violation of, of that separation uh, be between uh, uh, Hong Kong and, and China and seemed to completely uh, 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 violate everything that, um, you, you know, made Hong Kong a, a special place. Um, so it, it, it became a, a, a really desperate battle uh, where protesters knew they had to stop this. I mean, at this point, people weren't even talking about democracy per se. It was just we need to protect the, the, the thin legal uh, barrier that, that, that gives us some kind of hope uh, to be able to choose our own way. Um, you know, not 
to be confused with declaring independence from China, um, but simply having the autonomy that was promised in this post-colonial arrangement to be able to decide how to manage your own day-to-day affairs. So then after all of that comes this national security law. Could you briefly give us an overview of what exactly this new law does? This is the nightmare scenario for the Hong Kong democracy movement. It's something that Hong Kongers saw coming for a long time, but a lot of people didn't expect that it would happen this soon and to this level of severity. Essentially, it outlaws dissent. You can't go on Facebook anymore and write something criticizing your leaders without risking getting thrown in prison. It sets up new courts that are outside of any sort of legal challenge, and people who are prosecuted under this system can be brought across the border to mainland China and interrogated, imprisoned, tried without any lawyer present. And the scary thing, I think, is that it doesn't really specify what will be considered a crime. So it's essentially a blank check for the government to go after anyone who it considers to be a threat to its power. And of course, that is aimed at the pro-democracy protesters who are still out there on the streets today fighting for elections in Hong Kong as they have been for the last few decades. So it doesn't only apply to those who are in the streets of Hong Kong. It also applies to everybody, right? So essentially, you are in violation of this law right now, correct? (laughs) That's true. And that's uh, really unprecedented. The national security law says that it applies to anyone, regardless of your citizenship, nationality status, and geographic location, as long as you do something that the Chinese Communist Party or the officials in Hong Kong deem to be a threat against their authority, they have the right to prosecute you when you cross the border. That means that me coming on this podcast uh, right now could be in violation of the new national security law. You're located in New York City right now. Like the rest of us, you have probably been in your apartment for the entire last five months. Uh, You're not going to Hong Kong to report on this. How do you go about your reporting on the events on the ground there? And has it become more difficult since the law went into place? Absolutely. So I was a journalist for CNN International in Hong Kong between 2014 and 2016. I covered the Umbrella Movement. And back then, there was a lot of latitude as a foreign media reporter to enter these protest zones, get past the police cordons. That is not the case anymore. Journalists are being asked to leave Hong Kong. Journalists are getting their visas revoked. Uh, the line is, is moving. So it's been a few weeks since the law went into effect. As near as you can tell, how has it changed Hong Kong in that matter of a few weeks? Well, even from here, you could feel it. A lot of the social media profiles that people had opened to talk about the Hong Kong protests over the last year went silent. And Hong Kong Twitter has really died down. People have had to delete their Facebook profiles. But on the streets, there is a sense that it's not time to give up, that we can't give in to fear. And that's what a lot of my friends who are living in Hong Kong are telling me, that, you know, the world isn't over. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep 
standing up for what we believe in. That being said, there already have been people arrested under this new law. Uh, police have even designed this special sign that they raise during protests that says you may be violating the national security law by doing what you're doing right now. So it's a different atmosphere and people are finding new ways to adapt to it. You've been drawing attention to the relationship between the governments of Hong Kong and the United States, in particular when it comes to policing. So earlier this month, President Trump issued an executive order pulling back from cooperation with the government there in response to the new law. But in doing so, you wrote that the administration also put a spotlight on the fact that the U.S. State Department has been involved in training police in Hong Kong. So how has this training affected the way that police have responded to protests? What was really interesting about Trump's executive order, which, by the way, was Trump basically saying the U.S. will no longer treat Hong Kong differently than it treats the People's Republic of China. The U.S. foreign policy for the last 20 odd years since Hong Kong's handover, the U.S. has essentially treated Hong Kong as a separate territory for the purposes of mm -hmm. trade, finance, e even diplomatic relations to some degree. And this is because of the system in Hong Kong called One Country, Two Systems. And that's the special status that allows China and uh, its trading partner, the U.S., to use Hong Kong as this intermediate territory to do all sorts of things that it couldn't do if the two countries were just dealing with each other directly. And so for the U.S. to come here and say, all right, we're no longer going to treat Hong Kong differently was a pretty big change uh, for, for Hong Kong. Uh, it means that China also won't be able to use Hong Kong in the way that it has been to deal with the U.S. Uh, in terms of trade and finance and so on either. What was interesting about this executive order is that it revealed the extent to which the U.S. was actually collaborating with the Hong Kong government. And one of them was that the U.S. State Department will no longer train the Hong Kong police force. So that was interesting that now in July 2020, the U.S. government will finally stop providing aid and training to the Hong Kong police that the U.S. politicians have been condemning and, and, and that we've all been seeing attacking protesters and doing all sorts of horrible things in the streets. To me, this was a perfect example of the way that when you look past the simplistic stories that are told about how this is just freedom versus authoritarianism, that Hong Kong is sort of on the side of liberty with the U.S. and the West, and we're fighting for these rights, and China is the authoritarian regime that is uh, responsible for everything that's bad. Well, I mean, that's only maybe part of the story and actually a very distorted story because, in fact, the U.S. and China are using the same forms of state violence. They're sharing notes. They're training each other on things like drug raids, on enhanced interrogation techniques, on how to deal with these tactical situations when you have a bunch of protesters on the street. I mean, this is not a conspiracy theory at all. This is this this is public information that you can find on the State Department website about uh, what they've actually been doing with the Hong Kong police force. So the question is, OK, well, why would they do this, right? Why would the U.S. government want to provide support to Hong Kong police, the police that we know have been opposing this pro-democracy movement. And, mm. and the answer is that everywhere you look, whether it's in the US, it's in, whether it's in Seattle or New York or Portland or Hong Kong or Beijing, the police are protecting the ruling class. 
the police are looking after the interests of the rich. They're looking after the business elite, and they're looking after the politicians who are working with the business elite. In Hong Kong, the government is actually a very corporatist government.、Uh, it uses state violence to put down any threats to this. Uh, marvelous capitalist financial hub thing that they've got going on,、uh, which relies on a sense of stability and order. And you can't have protesters just, you know, smashing the windows of banks and and doing all sorts of chaos if you want. Hong Kong to be a, a, a glistening financial hub. So, and the larger point here really is that the U.S. and China, for all of its surface-level competition, right, all the rhetoric about you know we're, we're just these two、uh, unassimilable oppositional forces,、um, is kind of、uh, covering up the other story, which is that they're actually in the symbiotic economic relationship that they're upholding this system of global capitalism. Together,、uh, that they both exploit people in their own countries, and that they both rely on the same forms of state violence to、uh, make sure that exploitation can continue. So, activists have been accused of colluding with the West, right?、Um, this is actually written into the new law. But your reporting shows that the government has actually been working with the U.S. Is this hypocrisy, or is it just that the West is intertwined with both sides of this fight? The pretext for the national security law is to fight foreign collusion. It's suggesting that there's some kind of nefarious Western、uh, dark hand that is stirring up chaos and 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 ruining everything in in Hong Kong. Well, if that were the case, then why would the Hong Kong police accept training from the U.S. State Department? The Chinese government or the Hong Kong government could have pulled the plug on this program any time they wanted. What the government is really afraid of in in Hong Kong and in China is not really that the West is somehow going to mastermind this plot to overthrow and destabilize everything. They're afraid of their own people. This is true of any government anywhere. They're afraid of their own people、uh, standing up. Saying this is not a good deal. This is not the life that we want, and we demand better. For many years, the Chinese Communist Party has used different tactics to suppress dissent. It's harder to do in Hong Kong because Hong Kong has enjoyed different rights,、uh, and now the Chinese Communist Party is feeling very threatened by it. So they have to find whatever pretext they can find to stop it. The in- introduction of this law. Coincided with the protests against racism and police brutality、uh, in the United States following the the police killing of George Floyd, what are the people in China being told about what's happening in the United States right now? Folks in China were a little caught off guard, and when the Black Lives Matter protests broke out in the U.S., you saw. Figures in the top levels of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as in Chinese state-run media, come out and actually mock the U.S. government for now also having to deal with riots and、uh, these chaotic protesters.、Uh, and the implication there was: now you know what we've had to deal with in Hong Kong. Both of these protesters were illegitimate.、Uh, that the U.S. was、uh, hypocritical for criticizing the Chinese Communist Party's state crackdown on the Hong Kong protesters. That the U.S. crackdown would be justified, just as the Chinese government's crackdown on Hong Kong protesters 
would be justified. Chinese government saw this as an opportunity to double down on what they believe to be legitimate state violence against all protesters. Um, but then you saw some other voices in uh Chinese media and the Chinese government try to take uh, the different tack and and kind of call out the U.S. for creating the conditions that would necessitate a Black Lives Matter movement in the first place. You know, it, it showed that they were trying to find how they could exploit uh, the protests in the U.S. to push their own uh, agenda. And it was all over the place. And you saw the uh, politicians in the U.S. also struggling to reconcile the way they would talk about these two movements differently, especially on the U.S. right wing. You have Tom Cotton's, the Marco Rubio's, the Ted Cruz's, who were so enthusiastic about the Hong Kong protests throughout the last year. You know, I've always rejected this kind of support, as have many uh, folks on the Hong Kong left, because we see this as utterly hypocritical. We don't take support from people who are pro-police at home and, and pro-police brutality. Um, but then they were caught in a bind when, when the protests started happening on both sides. You saw folks like Josh Hawley, uh, who have been praising the protests uh, every single week in Hong Kong, suddenly uh, squirm uh, when asked to say, Black Lives Matter or defend the protesters also rising up for uh, their rights, uh, for their basic dignity, for freedom, for uh, 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 freedom from state violence uh, in the streets of Minneapolis and New York and, and uh, uh, Seattle and all over the country. Um, and, you know, you had this farcical op-ed from Senator Tom Cotton uh, in the New York Times that said, send in the troops, uh, meaning send, let's send in the U.S. troops against uh, protesters in the U.S., which was published on the day before the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, which is something that he always uses as a cudgel against uh, China um, in the halls of Congress. You're talking a lot about how the leaders of these countries are, are viewing these different movements. But I wonder, how do the movements view each other? Is there common cause here? Or is this just sort of two outgrowths of, uh, of what you call sort of this global system? I think that we're actually only at the beginning of a struggle that I think we're going to find more and more commonalities as time goes on. But in the past, we haven't had enough opportunities to meet each other and see these similarities. Recently in New York, I was part of a small protest here in front of the Chinese consulate. And one of the speakers at this protest was a member of the local Demo Democratic Socialists of America Afro-Socialist Caucus. And he's a black Guyanese immigrant who stood up and he said, you know, the reason why I'm here protesting with y'all today is because uh, we are facing a similar structure of oppression. You know, he's a Guyanese immigrant. His family faced state violence by a nominally communist government. And he understood that the Chinese Communist Party is really not a communist government, that it's actually using the same kinds of uh, capitalist exploitation and violence that we see here in America, and that there are uh, so many uh, points for solidarity between Black Lives Matter and the Hong Kong movements. Why is this happening now? You know, I think we're at a moment three decades after the end of the Cold War, right? When you see 
the promise of this post-Cold War consensus that uh, global neoliberalism was going to create this everlasting peace really fall apart. People back then were talking about the end of history. Uh, people mm-hmm. expected China to actually join up with this Western-led liberal order. Every sign seemed to point in that direction. China was applying for the WTO. Uh, China had promised Hong Kong democracy. Uh, everything was kind of moving toward this idea that we were going to be one world because of globalization, uh, that everyone could just work hard and enjoy these new global benefits and everything was going to be peachy. Well, we've had not one but two major global financial crises. We're facing a horrible pandemic where none of the countries are working together and are actually pointing the finger at each other while thousands of people are dying. A lot of the problems that the end of the Cold War purported to have solved, and I'm talking about the legacy of colonialism, talking about white supremacy, talking about these giant geopolitical conflicts that caused so much misery in the 20th century, those problems were actually never fully addressed. And, and, and now you see them coming back out in different ways, whether that's in the streets of Hong Kong with this incomplete decolonization that you know never really took place in Hong Kong, or the uh, legacy of white supremacy coming back to haunt us in America. I think that they are part of a larger failure. Just having a higher GDP year over year isn't actually what your everyday person desires. We want dignity. We want to have a future. We want to know that our kids are going to be safe. And this is true uh, in every single part of the world. The more that the governments don't actually try to meet people where they are and address these problems, the more we're going to see these uprisings. And so I don't find it a coincidence at all that this is all happening at once. All right. I have one more question for you. You were born in Hong Kong. Do you think you'll ever return? And how are you thinking about your personal stake in this? It's heartbreaking for me because Hong Kong is my home. You know, I I was born there. I have family there. I have some of my best friends there. And I, I struggled there alongside the folks who are struggling still. I have a lot of stake in what's happening in the U.S. as well. I never thought that I would give up on the idea of living in Hong Kong again. The, the law is vague, so I don't know whether they, uh, whether this violates the law or doesn't, or, or whether they even care what I have to say, right? That being said, it's the risk. It's, it's, it's what happens when I cross the border. Uh, can I, will I have to self-censor? The fact that we have to go through the, uh, the mental challenge of grappling with these questions already delimits what you can do and who you can be. Certainly, I'm not... Uh, the number one on the type of people that the government's trying to target. There are people who are actively uh, in danger or already, um, you know, suffering under this legislation right now. And and so as far as I have uh, a shred of uh, safety or, or privilege or, or good fortune to be able to keep speaking out, I'll try to keep doing that. All right. That's Wilfred Chan. He's a contributing writer at The Nation, and I am sure we'll continue tracking what's happening in Hong Kong and the new national security law. Wilfred, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your perspective with us. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Mason Bryant, and I'm the associate editor of Crosscut Opinion. We are surrounded by two massive and complicated stories right now. Knowing what to think about the pandemic and the protests can feel like a full-time job. 
That's why, over the last few months, Crosscut Opinion has tried to bring analysis and argument to bear on these history-defining events. With help from a roster of really smart writers, I'm working every day to introduce new ideas, and maybe a few old ones, into the public conversation. If nothing else, we hope the op-eds and essays we publish can help you think for yourself about this tumultuous moment and how it's transforming society. All of this commentary is free for you, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news and opinion source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners like you to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com donate. Okay, back to the show. I'm on now with David Croman, Crosscut City reporter. David, welcome back to the podcast. Hi. Hey, so we've been having you on a good bit recently, and uh, we've been talking about policing, and in particular, what Seattle city leadership has been doing to address the concerns and demands of the protests that followed the killing of George Floyd. So tensions were high earlier this summer, but it felt like things had cooled off a bit. The so-called occupied protests of Capitol Hill had been brought to an end, and while peaceful protests continued, most of the focus had turned to City Hall, where city council members and the mayor began what felt like the initial steps toward some kind of an agreement on what public safety might look like in the city in the future. But then everything kind of changed and you found yourself on the streets this weekend uh, as protesters and police clashed. So what happened? Why did protesters feel the need to take to the streets in this way again? Well, I think what happened was Portland happened. Um, there are videos of federal agents arresting protesters away from federal property and without identifying themselves. And, you know, this part of a push or, you know, some say a sort of campaign reelection strategy of President Donald Trump to basically have a show of force in liberal cities to create the sort of impression that he was cracking down on unruly protests that, um, you know, in Portland, as, as we've seen, that has kind of gone the opposite direction, that the presence of federal agents has actually exacerbated the situation down there. Right. And, you know, I think what we were seeing over the weekend was kind of the ripple effects of that. It was pushed a little further ahead by news that some federal agents were being sent to Seattle, although it sounds like it was kind of in the range of maybe 20 to 30 federal agents, a lot fewer than the over 100 that were sent to Portland. Mm. Um, but but I think that was just enough to kind of get people riled up again and get people back out on the streets, which is what happened over the weekend. So how did Seattle police respond to the protesters? Uh, what was their stated approach to these protests? And then what happened actually on the ground uh, during the protests? Well, it was really interesting to, to start. So, you know, the, the protesters gathered around one in the afternoon on Saturday at Seattle Central College. Um, and it was fairly clear from the beginning that that this was a kind of amped up group. Um, mm. There was a speaker who was encouraging people not to be timid. Um, the, the sort of dress of people was a lot more defensive. There were a lot more helmets and goggles and face coverings. Of course, some of that's from COVID, but... Y- y- Definitely sort of a more, um, a little bit more of an aggressive posture. Um, And, you know, people had umbrellas, which have become this symbol of 
um, confrontational protests that started in Hong Kong and it sort of spread around the world. And right. people had leaf blowers that they were carrying around, which seemed to imply that they were preparing for tear gas that they could then, you know, use the leaf blowers to blow away. So I'd say from the beginning, you kind of got the sense that this was that the, most of the people there expected and would actually be okay with if this protest went kind of more on the aggressive side. But what was interesting is that as they started marching for probably the first two hours almost, they marched around Capitol Hill, marched south, and you couldn't see a single po- police officer anywhere. Um, there were some in sort of dark, unmarked cars circling the area. Mm-hmm. And a few blocks away, I think there were some officers on bike, but they were clearly trying to sort of keep a um, a little bit more of an anonymous profile. But, you know, along the way, um, some protesters or some people in the crowd lit some construction trailers on fire and then, you know, broke out some windows of some buildings. And so um, that kind of detente that was there for a little while pretty quickly evaporated. And then right back on Capitol Hill, where there were those weeks of the occupied protest, um, yet again, uh, we saw these clashes between Seattle police and uh, people marching in the crowd. And it got it got pretty aggressive pretty quickly. A lot of um, pushing and pulling and a lot of uh, pepper spray and a lot of blast balls and loud booms. Um, yeah, it, it, there wasn't a lot of ramp up time. It kind of went from zero to 60 pretty quickly. Hmm. Why is it that the protesters are pulled to this area, uh, to the East Precinct in Capitol Hill? Do you have a sense of like why that is the ground zero for where this um, is going to play out? I think that there's something about the East Precinct and where it is. I mean, it's right in the center of kind of the most liberal, um, young part of the city. And there's a super vibrant neighborhood all around it and, you know, a lot of colorful architecture. And then there's this sort of concrete palace right in the middle. And hmm. that sort of very quickly became kind of um, an easy thing to target and protest. And now I think it's kind of familiar territory. Right. Um, they know how to occupy that area. They know which streets they can run down. And I wouldn't say that there's anything really um, symbolically significant about it, except for what has become significant just in the last few months, Hmm. that it was the scene of this uh, fairly historic, uh, multi-week, basically sit-in on six blocks of Capitol Hill. Right. So that's not the only place where action is taking place, so to speak, over this past weekend. You know, On Friday night, a federal judge in Seattle blocked a ban on tear gas in the city that was set to go into effect over the weekend. And this was at the request of the Department of Justice. Can you explain this decision to us? Because it's really confusing. It's really confusing. I will do my best to explain it. So, you know, the the short of it is it, it was not a new lawsuit. It was a request to block it as part of this other ongoing lawsuit, which was basically between the federal government and the city of Seattle to make its police department better. But what was interesting is, you know, since uh, Donald Trump was elected president, the the federal government has basically taken a total backseat to that ongoing lawsuit um, because it's not something that the Trump administration really cares about. Mm-hmm. And so the, um, we've seen that from the Justice Department. They have their, their filings are brief. They don't really put a lot of effort into them. They just don't really care that much. So it was sort of odd that as part of that, suddenly the Department of Justice, which hasn't seemed to care very much for the last few years, cares quite a great deal about the city of Seattle potentially banning the use of tear gas or pepper spray or blast balls. And so their argument was kind of odd in that they were saying if they ban these tools, 
the Seattle police are actually going to use more force because they are not trained how to control crowds without the use of these tools. And so mm -hmm. they're saying that basically these officers need time to be trained how to do this without using these tools. Hmm. What's really confusing about it is they were basically, they, they went to court to block an order from Chief Carmen Best telling her officers to not bring these weapons to the protest. The funny thing is Chief Carmen Best was only giving those orders because the Seattle City Council had made her give those orders. She actually, she wanted her officers to have these tools. So you have this strange situation where the federal government is asking for a restraining order against the chief of police and the chief of police supports having a, straining, a restraining order put against her. Um, really odd, but what, what ended up happening is um, this ban on tear gas and pepper spray um, was blocked. Short and skinny was the federal government got what it wanted, which was Seattle police officers were allowed to have pepper spray on their belts. And how did the weekend go? I mean, did we see did we see the use of a lot of pepper spray and, and these other these other crowd control weapons that that you're talking about here? Yeah, we did. So after the court weighed in, um, Chief Best said that the officers would have pepper spray and they would have blast balls. She um, made a promise that they would not use tear gas, which had been a sort of big um, point of contention. Um, and so when the clashes started between protesters and police, that they were very quick to use pepper spray and they were very quick to use these blast balls. You know, they never used, they never technically actually used tear gas. Mm -hmm. Um, but they, you know, these blast balls that they use have a small amount of pepper spray in them. So it sort of is a similar sensation to, to tear gas in a lot of ways, which is a little bit of a loophole, but, um, yeah, I mean, there was hundreds, I would say, of these loud booms and, and many gallons of pepper spray being used against protesters. One thing that we did not see over the weekend is we didn't see the protesters march on the federal courthouse. There was some sense maybe that the authorities felt like that might happen. Um, as you said, the whole catalyst for this reinvigoration of the protests was Portland. And the thing in Portland is that the protesters are marching on the federal courthouse. There was no uh, sign of any sort of federal force on the streets at all. There was no engagement with protesters at all. So why is it that the protesters didn't didn't go anywhere near the courthouse? I mean, it's, it's hard to speak for um, everyone about why something happened. But I will say that in Portland, I think what really set that off was the impression and the apparently correct impression that federal officers were not doing what they are usually told to do, which is specifically protect federal property. Federal officers in Portland were leaving their posts from federal property and arresting people in the streets of Portland, which many people believe is outside of their jurisdiction. That was not happening in Seattle. Um, there were federal agents, but they seemed to stay near the courthouse. And I think, so I think when it comes down to it, most of the protesters kind of have more of a problem with the Seattle Police Department than they do with some federal officers protecting the courthouse. People in the crowd were throwing rocks and bricks and bottles at the police officers, and they knew that they were not do targeting federal agents. Um, but there's kind of a lot of bad blood between this group and local police. So as it turned out, they didn't necessarily need the kind of motivating factor of federal agents on the streets because they feel um, a lot of animosity just towards the local police. All right. Well, David, thanks so much. I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's episode. 
Thanks again to David and to Wilfred Chan for joining me. This episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. And this week we had Crosscut Opinion Editor Mason Bryan providing some editorial support, so thanks to Mason. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.